tomato, don't give them any of your bad habits. excited group right there. Yes. Follow the noise. You'll find them, I promise. Thank you, Miss Hillary. Uh, very thankful for those that continue to uh, serve the kids. As you all know, I mean, for the last eight, nine months, we've tried to keep up with what's going on. We try to do the best we can to meet everyone where they're at and, and to make sure that they are um, comfortable, such a comfortable, such an unchristian word. I'm, I'm just so hesitant to use it almost time, but to, you know, to try to be wise in how we're operating right now, especially with the children. Uh, we're seeing now in, in study after study that these kids need each other. They need uh, a little bit of, of normalcy. They need uh, to, to have a little bit of life put back in them. So I'm thankful for those that are willing to uh, start that back up with Children's Church and to start working through that process again. Um, you know, they're learning so much constantly, and, and I am just really thankful for all those that have spent years working with my kids uh, around here. You all have blessed uh, Allison and I by loving them so well, and so we're just really thankful for that and all those uh, that partake in those ministries. Um, people have been working really hard to get the... the live stream and the stuff working so i'm thankful for those that have taken so much time trying to make things work around here everything has been on the fly everything has been on the move and you all have been really diligent to uh, not only make it good but to, to continue to improve it and you've constantly um, even when there's been issues on sunday morning you all just consistently amazed me with uh, figuring out those problems so i am very thankful for that as well we enter uh the christmas season uh, and first, let me mention, last week was a great week. It's always uh, really, really good to remember that there are people that are going places for the gospel. And Isaiah last week did a really uh, good job of presenting uh, a gospel message, presenting. I thought he was a great preacher. I, I just pray for him, continue to pray for him. His card is on the back. If you would like to put that up at your house, maybe on the refrigerator as a reminder uh, of, of, where, of who he is, where he's going, and what's going on in his life. Because the Lord could really do something uh, fantastic in his life. I would love for you and I to be able to be a part of that, at least um, through our prayers, that God would use him. Because, uh, you know, after last week, I really felt like he had a really bright future. The guy was clear, concise, and uh, that was a really good message. So I enjoyed that, and I was thankful for that. Uh, thankful to, for you all that gave, and uh, in order to help him, that was also uh, really good. Been a heavy week been a really heavy week uh, in our area. I shared with the Sunday school class uh, before coming over here to help uh, get things going for Sunday morning, but we need to be in prayer for, I mean, really all of Canal County right now. The emergency medical services has taken a beating this week. Um, the, the family of the Charleston police officer, they need our prayers. 
her friends, her, her, her work family, they need our prayers. The fire department that runs those calls, the guys that are on those medic units uh, that are, are taking care of those things need our prayers. We need to be praying for the chiefs of both departments. Uh, I think of uh, Tyke Hunt, the, the chief of Charleston Police. You all need to be praying for him. And then I want to mention uh, another person to you this week that's uh, close to the EMS family. Uh, Jason Worcester is, uh, used to be the chief at Jefferson Volunteer Fire Department. He works for Putnam County EMS. I think he worked for Kanawha County EMS for a while, too. Uh, we need to be praying for him today, uh, this morning, last night. Uh, his time in the hospital with the coronavirus got much worse. And so the news today has not been good so far. So we need to be praying for them. But there's just a lot of heartache uh, in, that, in that whole uh, family right now. I mean, emergency services are pretty close. Like if we catch a call, uh, a lot of times police is there with us. You know, St. Albans Police Department runs with us on really probably half of what we do, drug-related, domestic stuff-related, car wrecks, house fires. They run them all with us. So we're a pretty close family. And then you get into the medic units in Kanawha County and Putnam County. So it really becomes uh, just kind of a weird, dysfunctional family when we're all running around together. But in moments like this, like th it's really heavy. And this week has just been uh, tremendous. So a lot of the people that I love and care about are really struggling this morning. And uh, they're still sitting in fire stations and in police cars, uh, expected to respond to calls and expected to do things uh, with a clear head, uh, to do things as best they can for those that uh, need them. And these moments are not easy when everything is normal. Uh, much, they're much harder when everything is cloudy. So we need to be praying for them. And like I said, especially Tyke Hunt, the chief of uh, Charleston Police Department, he's been on the news uh, a couple times this week and really honored the Lord and really led a lot of people into the right direction to find some hope and some healing uh, through this kind of tragedy. And I say all that this morning, and, and even in the prayer this morning, my mind was just running around the idea that we're walking into this Christmas season. And you and I are landing when really all of our hope starts. And we find ourselves in a culture doing it when it looks like everything's falling apart. So God's timing, He, he knows what He's doing, because if you and I want, uh, if we want to be able to make it, through moments like this, because they're going to come. They always won't be so much at one time, but they're going to come. If you and I want to be able to make it, we have to have the hope that Christmas brings. And this morning, we're going to see that hope initially in the incarnation. God taking on flesh and coming to live with you and I. And you and I are going to look at that story. Why? Because it's a timeless message. As a matter of fact, it is really the only timeless message. There are no others. If it's not for this one, there is nothing else. There are no other stories worth telling. There is no hope worth grabbing a hold of. There's no good news that stays and there's no bad news that leaves. This is the timeless message. This is the timeless story. And with it, you and I can build a framework, a worldview for our life that honors the good, loves the good, but also knows how to deal with the bad. And our culture right now, our community right now needs that as much as it ever has before. All of the messages the world has to offer are attached to this one, the incarnation that God would put on flesh and come live this life. It verifies all of our historical knowledge, not about past kingdoms and not about what was going on in this year, but the idea of where we came from. 
The Christmas story verifies what we believe. Were you and I created with meaning or purpose, or are we a cosmic accident? Are we just the, the random chance, the consequences of random chances that eventually got it right? Or is there a creator? Or in that first moment in Genesis when, when God takes that dirt and he scoops it up and he forms man out of it and then he breathes into man the breath of life, are you and I there in potential waiting? Is your information there in that moment? Is my information there in that moment? Does God create specifically you and I? The Christmas story tells us that is true. It makes sense of our historical knowledge. The incarnation solidifies all future promises. Why do we believe what God has told us? Because Jesus has come. Why do we believe these stories and say there is a heaven to come, that he will wipe away every tear? It is because the incarnation, if a God loves us that much, if he will not remove himself from the pain and struggle of this life, you and I can trust him with what he says is next. So if you show up here this morning with any kind of hope for tomorrow, hope for blessings, hope for eternity, hope that your sins have been forgiven, hope that you will be with God, hope that you will see that loved one again. If you show up this morning, if you're listening this morning and you have that kind of hope, you have it because of the Christmas story. Now, I've told you all many times before, I believe they're linked, that you can't separate Christmas and Easter. You can't separate the birth of Christ without the resurrection of Christ. So I see them as one. So the incarnation story today we will talk about, it goes from start of life to end of life. Why? Because the resurrection verifies as much as the birth of Jesus. Without him coming out of that tomb bodily alive, there's no proof that he was virgin born. Right? That's a pretty, that's a pretty insane story uh, to tell. And without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it would have been really easy to say they're lying about that story. It was not a virgin birth, and she was just trying to keep from being stoned or killed or ostracized or living with more shame than she already had to live with. So we need to see the incarnation, and we need to see the whole story. It is what holds each trying moment in check. The reason why you can get that phone call and not just crumple into a mess and stay that way is because of the hope of the incarnation of God. The incarnation of Christ, that He's going to take on flesh, that He's going to come. Without that hope, that phone call would destroy us. The loss of a loved one, a bad doctor's appointment, separation that can't be fixed. It not only holds into check every trying moment, but the incarnation elevates every great moment to the point that it doesn't have to end. You see, this life you and I are living, we are investing in the future. So when we have great moments and we use them to honor and glorify God and we bring other people into that celebration with us, you know what happens in eternity? You never lose it. That's one of the greatest pieces about investing in God's kingdom. The interest rate never ends. When time stops, the good in this world, you and I are still enjoying. Why? Because we could do it in a way that honored God. And when we brought people into that story with us, when we brought people into this Christian story, when they saw uh, the blessings of our life that God was handing to us, that God was pouring out on us, and we brought them in, we never lose them. You invest them in His kingdom. So there are some really wonderful thoughts that come out of this idea of the incarnation of Christ.
Eventually we'll be in Luke chapter 2 if you want to go there. I'll be starting though where I always start. And to be honest with you, this feels like eight years of sermons. It feels like I'm reviewing eight years of sermons with you. Because as I, as I read through these things, I'm reminded constantly of how important these ideas are to me, what they mean to me, how I have been molded and shaped through the years by the same story we're going to tell again today. And so we're going to end somewhere around Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2. But the incarnation is the idea that God comes. But what does He come with? He comes with good news. Genesis chapter 3 is a heartbreaking story. And if our worldview and our foundation doesn't start there, you'll get other things wrong as you go. So what happens in Genesis chapter 3 is God comes and He comes with a victorious message. He comes speaking victory. When He could have come damning creation when He could have come and should have come destroying those that had rebelled against Him. When He could have wiped the earth clean and started over. When He could have spoke and destroyed Adam and Eve because they had sinned against Him. Instead, He comes bringing a story of victory. You remember remember Genesis uh, chapter 3. The greatest betrayal and the greatest tragedy in history leaves three new enemies for mankind. What happened that day? You and I picked up three enemies. Sin, Satan, and death. You and I picked up three enemies right then. Why? Because our spiritual head, our, our authority, our physical head, Adam, agreed with the devil over God. He hands over the keys to the kingdom... This kingdom, this world that he was given to steward, he sides with the enemy, and in doing that, he gives authority to the enemy. What God had given him, he handed to someone else, and it corrupts and it perverts, and that betrayal and that tragedy leaves you and I with three enemies, and we see them in Genesis chapter 3. Satan that speaks, sin that enters in, and then the idea that spiritual death comes immediately. Physical death will come later. And so that's the story of Genesis chapter 3. We have to start there. The greatest betrayal and tragedy in history is met with one of the most amazing promises the world has ever seen. This is the most amazing promise for mankind that has ever been uttered. And what does God say to the serpent? God says to the serpent, you're cursed. You're going to lay on your belly. You're going to lick the dust of the air. I'm going to put enmity. I'm going to put fear and anger and frustration between you and the seed of woman, all of mankind for all of history. Very few people enjoy the sight of a snake, right? Even to this day, grown men will flee. You don't have to. That's a black snake. We're good. Nope. Out. Toughest man you ever met. Might be scared of snakes. One of the toughest guys I've ever met scared of bees. I'm not going to mention him because I love him. But to this day, we don't enjoy that. Most people don't enjoy that, right? Trevor does because he remembers the story of me getting lit up by one four or five times while he stood a ways off laughing his head off because the snake was biting me because I was trying to show the kids. Most people don't enjoy it. wasn't a copyright. I'm good. Most people don't enjoy that. Part of that is in the curse. Like, Stuff involving serpents usually isn't good. Back to Genesis chapter 3, and you'll see the seed of that for all of, all of mankind, all of human history. God tells the serpent, you're going to bruise his heel, 
and he's going to crush your head. The seed of woman is going to crush your head. What a promise. Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, is uttered by God to Adam and Eve after the only two people, listen to me very carefully because this is really important to our theology. I need you to understand this. The only two people to ever have complete free will was Adam and Eve. Born without a sin nature. Born outside of the line that you and I were born into. Those two people chose with complete clarity. They spoke with God in the garden. They chose to dishonor Him. They chose to believe the enemy. They chose to believe the lie. And instead of God destroying them where they were, which would have been well within His right, He comes in and He speaks a message of good news. That's Genesis chapter 3. The victories in Genesis, what do we see? Well, in 3.15, we see that Satan's going to have his head crushed. That's uh, 3.15. In 3.21, what happens? God slaughters the first animal to create a covering for Adam and Eve's nakedness. What does he do in that? What, what you and I see is the picture that will take place forevermore, that the sin of mankind must be covered. And f- until Christ come, and until the church is born, that covering was always the blood of a sinless animal. It would be shed so that our sins would be covered. Then the sinless Lamb of God comes, and when He sheds His sinless, perfect blood, our sins are washed away. You see, the Jewish people had to come back on repeat, constantly. The bleeding of the lambs would have been something that went on forever. The sounds, the noises, the smells, the blood, it would have been a constant reminder of how bad things were in this world. Do you understand how graphic that would have been on a daily basis? It was there for a reason. It was a reminder of how offensive sin is to God. That without the death of something innocent, there is no remission of sin. And so Christ would come, and instead of covering our sin like God does in Genesis 3.21, He covers the nakedness of Adam and Eve with the, with the skins of an animal. Christ comes and He washes us clean. Because the good news is, God says, the seed of woman will come. That seed is Jesus Christ. What happens in 322 is one of the things in, in Scripture that really kind of twist your mind and knots. But how is death actually destroyed? In Genesis chapter 3, it's destroyed. This God kicks them out of the garden. I've told you this before, and I hope you heard it when I said it. For the Christian, death is the ultimate release. We don't seek it out. We don't run toward it. We try to love and honor God, and even those in hostile environments don't run toward death. That's something that the church has always pushed back against. We do not do that. But what releases you and I into the presence of God, finally to be there without interruption, without sin, without frustration, is death. So what does God do to Adam and Eve? He says, now they have become like us with the knowledge of good and evil. If they take from the tree of life and eat, they'll be stuck that way forevermore. So God removes them from the garden. Penalizing them with the death penalty, eventually it's going to come physically, but He does that as a grace so that you and I, that last 
enemy, death, is now defeated. Why? Because God removes them from the garden. God says they cannot partake in that. Why? Because if they do that, they'll be stuck in their sinful state forevermore. They'll be spiritually dead, but physically alive. A wonderful, wonderful passage in Genesis chapter 3. I'm begging you to get familiar with it. So God comes with good news at a time when He doesn't have to. He brings good news. How about Genesis chapter 15, another story that we're going to cover this morning before we get into the birth of Christ. God comes with what? He comes with a plan. In Genesis chapter 15, what happens is God has made some promises to Abram. God has made some wonderful promises to him. In this passage, God comes again and he makes another wonderful promise to him. But in order to do that now, they're going to have to be in covenant relationship. What you and I would consider the idea of a marriage vow. They're going to have to be in covenant relationship. And this covenant is going to be so strong that to violate it means death. In the Old Testament, in that time period, what was that picture? The picture was this. It was called walking the blood trail. So God tells Abram, go get these animals. Abram gets them, brings them back. He he splits them in half and he lays them out. And there is the blood trail. And there is, again, the picture of death. So in Genesis chapter 15, God looks at Abram and says, I'm going to make a promise with you. He's already told him, I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm going to multiply you. Abram still hasn't seen those things come about, but he's still just walking and believing. And now God comes again and he says, this time I'm bringing a plan. I'm going to make a deal with you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. And if I break this covenant, you can kill me. But Abraham, guess what? You're going to break the covenant. Do you remember that story in Genesis chapter 15? The animals are laid open. The blood trail is is ready to walk. And I can guarantee you, Abram was tore up with the idea of what was getting ready to happen. Like, I've done some risky things in my life. This one don't feel like a risk. This one feels like failure. I'm going to walk this blood trail with God Almighty. He's made me promises, and now I'm going to swear to him that I'm never going to disobey him that he is master, he is king, and we're going to be that way until I die. I'm going to make that swear. And as Abram walks up, get ready to walk that blood trail with God, God says, set it out. Have a seat. God, in that passage, walks it basically with himself. Remember that story? It's the smoking pot and the flaming torch and those two things. As Abram Abram sits to the side, he doesn't walk it. Why? Because if God makes Abram walk it, the next time he sins, it is over. He is not a perfect man. He's just a faithful one. So God walks the blood trail with himself. Some piece of the Godhead is walking that blood trail on Abram's behalf. Do you see how the story starts to come together? What did I tell you happens if you dishonor the covenant? The picture is what is done to these animals will be done to me if I dishonor what I'm telling you I will do. God sets Abram to the side, walks it with himself. Do you see the picture of the gospel that's getting ready to take place? I cannot help but think the smoking pot or the flaming torch, one of those represents Jesus Christ, who would come, who would pay the ultimate price. 
And so in Genesis chapter 15, we see this story. God comes to Abram with a promise and a plan. God promises come under the condition of covenant relationship. In order to fulfill them, he'll have to fulfill both sides of the arrangement. God is not going to be able to bless Abram on Abram's merits. Why? Because he's never going to be able to hold up his end of the deal. He is going to fail. Because of that, God must take this covenant with himself. The only one he can trust to be perfect. The only one he can trust to fulfill what needs to happen next. And in order to fulfill them, one half of this relationship is going to have to die. Story of the gospel seen in Genesis 15. God makes a covenant with someone that cannot, cannot fulfill his end. Knowing that one day in the future he is going to send himself to die. That Abram, that the promises that he makes, Abram are going to be fulfilled. But he's going to do so without Abram living and struggling to fulfill all of God's commands. You see, God comes with a plan. He comes with good news. He comes with a plan. What else does God do? This God, this God of incarnation, he comes with consistency. And some, someone else would come and they would find way more than this. Just what I could come up with off the top of my head. How many times does God come in the Old Testament to people? How many times does he show up and lead and guide and love and care? There is a list right there of just the ones I could think of right off the top of my head. In Genesis chapter 18, he shows up to negotiate with Abram about Sodom and Gomorrah. He shows up to warn Abram, I'm getting ready to destroy those cities. And then he allows Abram to dialogue with him and as a good Jewish man, negotiate. Abram, in those passages, shows you and I how our prayer life should be. What does Abram do first? He uses the, the character of God in his moment with him. And he says, Lord, far be it from a righteous God to destroy a whole city filled with righteous people. If there are a hundred people, will you spare the city? And God says, yes, I will. And he just keeps going on down from there. The problem with Sodom and Gomorrah was there wasn't ten righteous people. There wasn't ten righteous people. There's a lot of shame in that idea for Lot. Why? Because his family consisted of, I think, six or eight people. If he would have just had his house in order, they'd have been halfway to ten. More than halfway. So Genesis 18 is that story. What happens next? Well, in Genesis 22, he stops the sacrifice. The beauty of the picture. God tells Abraham, take your beloved son Isaac up and offer him up. And what does Abraham do? He looks at the servants. He's a couple days away and he says, we're going to go. And then remember that passage. He says, we're going to come back. We're going to go and we're going to come back. So Abraham, in his mind, already knew God has made me promises. He will fulfill those promises. And me and the boy are going to go and me and the boy are going to return to you. He says that to the servant as he makes them wait. They go up. They hike the mountain. Isaac is carrying the stuff for his own sacrifice. Remember the dialogue in that passage? Father, I see the wood, I see we have the fire, we have this, we have that, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham looks at him and says, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. 
the Lord will provide the sacrifice. And as Abraham binds his beloved son and lays him on that altar to sacrifice him for God, knowing that God is going to do a miracle here like he did for me to even receive him, God is going to do another miracle. And as he raises his hand with the knife in hand and he gets ready to sacrifice his only son, God speaks. Don't do it. The sacrifice is right there. And over in the thicket is the ram that they need to finish that process. That's Genesis 22. God comes. Consistently, he comes to the people. Genesis 32, he wrestles with Jacob all night. Another idea that you and I need to grab a hold of, God loves the tenacious. Don't be a quitter. And if you look at Jacob's story, you're better off to be a scoundrel that don't quit. All night they wrestle. The rest of his life, Jacob limps, but he limps with the blessing of God. How about in Exodus chapter 3, he calls out to Moses, right? Take your shoes off. You're on holy ground from the burning bush. This is what you're going to do. Hey, Moses, you are a Jew turned Egyptian, turned murderer, turned shepherd. You're now a nobody. You're going to go back and you're going to be the one that leads my people out of Egypt. He speaks to Moses. What happens in Exodus 14? He stops and stomps the Egyptian army. Remember? Oh my, here's the nation of nobodies. The slaves are going toward the sea. They are now stopped. And what? The Pharaoh has changed his mind again. There have already been ten plagues. There's been the death of the firstborn. I believe in Egyptian theology that Pharaoh was also a god. I believe this eleventh thing that happens is God destroying the last God of Egypt. And so he opens the sea and the Jews walk through and what happens behind them? The ring of fire and smoke, right? The Egyptian army cannot get to them. God shows up and he stops them. And then as the nation of Israel walks through, when they finish on dry land, Pharaoh thinks he can follow. Pharaoh doesn't understand yet that he does not have the protection of God on his side. And so as he goes to follow, what happens? The Egyptian army is decimated. I believe that is the 11th God that Jehovah destroys in that passage. We always talk about the first 10 and how they match certain Egyptian gods. Well, in, that, in, in Egyptian theology, Pharaoh was also a god. I believe that's 11. And God says, I've just smothered your God with all of his army. So God speaks there. Exodus 19 and Exodus 34, he's speaking to Moses. He's giving him the Ten Commandments. Then he has to do it again. Why? Because the nation of Israel is down committing idolatry. The gold that God gave them as they walked out of Egypt, they formed into a golden calf to worship. And so that's why there's two passages there. Why? Because Moses goes down, throws a righteous indignation fit, and then goes back up to get the Ten Commandments again to rewrite them, to speak with God. What happens later? Joshua 1 and Joshua 5. Joshua speaks with God. God comes again. In Joshua chapter 5, what do we see? They're getting ready to go into Jericho, and who do they run into? The angel of the Lord's armies. And Joshua says, are you forced or against us? He says, I'm for God. And, jo and Joshua falls down and he worships immediately. So God comes again. He comes and he gives him strength and he humbles him and he gets him ready for what's next. Judges chapter 6, God calls Gideon, right, out of the pit. 
you mighty man of valor. Remember that story? He's hiding, trying to get a little bit of wheat to make something to eat. He's hidden. Why? Because the people that are, are raiding are stealing all the food and everything else, and he is hidden, and God shows up and says, you mighty man of valor, I've got a job for you to do. God speaks again. Do you see the consistency with which God comes over and over and over? And then in Job 38, one of the most painful books to read in all of Scripture. At the end of that book, what happens? Job meets with God. You know, there's some really hard things in the Bible to deal with. The book of Job is one of them. Without a proper worldview, without a proper idea of who God is, how much he loves, without a proper idea of eternity itself, it gets really hard to deal with certain things. In that book of Job, when you read it and you're just, you're just really begging for God to show up, do something, help, take care of him, something. And I say all that to say this. Sometimes you're going to go through hell And if Job 38 teaches us anything, it teaches us that sometimes God's presence in the middle of it is worth more than anything or everything that you've lost. Lost your peace, you've lost your struggle, you've lost your job, you've lost your money, you've lost your health. Listen, if God shows up with you in that moment and you know him better because of it, there is nothing you can lose that is better than God showing up and answering your questions. The Lord shows up. The Lord comes repeatedly. Now, Luke chapter 1. We serve a God who comes to experience. Now, this is where it gets really amazing. This is the idea that no human mind can come up with an idea of a God that looks like ours. They just wouldn't do it. We, we associate God with power. Why would he come and want to be a part of what's going on? Look at Luke chapter 1. Look at verse 26 with me. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her saying, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus and he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jake forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. An amazing promise. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child, uh, the child to be born will be called holy. He will be set apart, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. <coughs> For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am your servant. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The story ties all of history, all of our experiences, and all of our future hope together. Isaiah 9, 6 says what? For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. What was born? The child was born. The son was given. The son had always been. The son was not created. The son we see from eternity past. The son we see in the Old Testament as he works through 
the lives of those that you and I love and honor so deeply, including Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Samson and Gideon. A God that's going to come and experience everything you and I do. He's going to come and struggle with us. We've spent so much time talking about the cross. I think we've missed some of the other nuances about the life of Christ. Do you understand that he had never sweat? You understand that the heat of the day would have been foreign to the one that had come from heaven to live this life? Like God never experienced not only pain, but any discomfort. Broken heart, yes, but a mashed thumb. You see, the Lord comes into that experience with you and I, not apart from us. That's the God we serve. He is amazing and loving and kind and good and strong and powerful. And instead of doing all of those things at an arm's distance, he does it right beside us. You and I are sweating and struggling and grieving, crying. And there's nothing you and I can whisper that Jesus doesn't understand. I'm giving away where we're going with this sermon, but man, I just cannot help but think about how wonderful that idea is. I said, Lord, I've been hurt. And he says, I know. I was too. Lord, life is hard. I know. I remember. Lord, I've been betrayed. I know. I remember. Lord, I've been beaten, butchered for my faith. They've taken my life and my family. And he says, I know. And you chose well. About how good the God is that you and I serve. Look in chapter 2. He not only comes to experience life, but he comes to experience real life. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear, and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. The Lord. And this will be a sign for you, for you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them in heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known and the, of the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. You see, Jesus doesn't come to be born in a palace where kings will see him first. He comes and he's born, and the first people to know what's going on outside of Mary and Joseph are the shepherds. The blue collar or the brown collar. Those that are working hard for a living, those that are taking care of the livestock. He could have just as easily been born in the palace in Rome and just kind of set himself up. He could have been like Moses, taken in by the Egyptian princess. 
But instead, he's born to a young man and a young woman. And the first people to know, the first people to see this child are the shepherds. God not only come to this life to experience life with us, but he come in a way that you and I cannot escape the idea that he's experienced all of it. From the shepherd to the king. From the shepherd to the warrior. From the carpenter to the Virgin Mary. Let me give you one idea real quick. Do you understand that when Mary said, I am God's servant, let him do what he wants. Do you understand that for the rest of her life she would live with the shame of having a child out of wedlock? You say, well, but they would have known he was God. They would have known he was Christ. No. When she said yes, and I need you to understand that because this comes in the next week's sermon, the invitation portion, the incarnation, and then the personal invitation. When she said yes, do with me what you want, she carried shame for the rest of her life. Because there would have been people in that culture that would have thought she deserved to die for having a child before she was married. Do you understand that? Because this young girl in her teens is willing to say in that moment, yes, I would rather be a part of God's plan and deal with the shame of people then I would be say no to what's getting ready to happen that is an amazing insight from a teenager so he is the God that comes and lives life and he lives real life and he wants to experience it why because he's the God that comes with love he's the God that comes with love You and I absolutely cannot understand this. This is what the ancient world could never understand. It's why when they talk about making up gods, the God of Scripture is not one you can do that with. These gods needed to be appeased. They needed to have their egos stroked. They needed to to, to bless you just to take care of your needs. They needed all of these other things. And all of this worship was done in a way, if not, they were going to beat you to death. Starve you, kill you. The God you and I serve comes because he loves. Jesus intervenes in human history not for any other reason than to bring the love and the glory of God to where you and I can touch it, see it, and be a part of it, where he can win us back into the kingdom with his perfect life. What happens in Job chapter 9? I told you Job is a hard passage to read through. In chapter uh, 9, he says this, God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. Uh, How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. But he will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. Some of you all can can pray this prayer. Some of you all can make this statement just like this. The Lord is pummeling me. I can't get away from it. That is what Job is talking about. Verse 19. It is, uh, if it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. I give up. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would reprove me. 
I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. It, uh, if it is not he, then who is it that is doing these things? Do you understand? Job is brokenhearted, and he's crying out. And then he gets to verse 32. For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him that we should come to trial together. Verse 33, there is no arbiter between us who may lay his hand on both of us. Job is distraught. Job is broken. He speaks out of that pain. And one of the most amazing things in that passage is God never charges him with sin. He can say things like that, and God never says, you're sinning, stop. At the end of the book, God says to Job, you need to pray for your buddies. I'm not forgiving them until you pray for them. Job says, there's no arbiter between God and myself. He is so much stronger, so mighty, so holy. If I were to say this or to say that, my own mouth would condemn me. That is the picture of Scripture. Job was a righteous man by any worldly measure. And even he sits there and says, there's no one that can put his hand on both sides. And in Hebrews chapter 14, or chapter 4, verse 14 says this, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And I love verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace. Grace to help in time of need. Do you see how the hardest moments in our life must collide head on with the story of Christmas? The incarnation is the peace that makes this life worth living. The incarnation of God Almighty is the peace that gives you and I hope for tomorrow. The incarnation shows His love. The incarnation solves our problems. The incarnation steadies our lives when things are crazy and out of control. The incarnation steadies those things. And the incarnation singles out the glory of God. As they come to finish in song, as they come to finish in worship, I want you to understand, we talk about these Christmas stories and we love them. Start talking about them from Genesis chapter 3. Start talking about them in the context of our brokenness and our need. Why? Because the incarnation of Christ shows us God's love. It shows us how He solves our problems. It shows us how he can steady our life, how he can get a hold of us and center us and anchor us and keep us going. That way when you wake up on a Monday and Sunday was horrible, you can just kind of dust it off and start again. It's not always going to be this way. It's not always going to be this hard. Until the day comes, he releases me from this completely. I will be steady and I will be steadfast. I will not quit. I will dig my heels in. Why? Because the story of Christ tells me that God loves me that much. And right now, if all I have is the mental wits to walk into the throne room of God and say, I need grace, I need mercy, God says you have it. The incarnation proves that. Jesus is our perfect high priest, not because he was made perfect. He is our perfect high priest. Why? Because you and I can never look at him and say, you don't understand what it was like. 
He has removed that from ever being spoken for all of eternity. Let me tell you what he can look at you and I and say, you will never know what it's like. You will never know what it's like to be separated from God. Whereas Christ on that cross for at least those three hours was separated from God. The sky goes, goes dark and he, he is our sin. It's brought upon him. He who knew no sin became our sin. The incarnation made that happen. So on that cross, he is dying your death and he is dying mine. And in that separation, he is paving the way to be with God forevermore so that even in your darkest moments you and I will never have it as bad as he did my God, my God why have you forsaken me you and I will never cry that because he did that's the story of Christmas sounds a little different when you see it from the context of what we actually needed Job says there is no one that could put his hand on him and put his hand on me and arbiter and figure out this fight there's no lawyer that can stand in this courtroom and bridge this gap between me and the holy if he only knew what prophecy he was whispering because a couple thousand years later wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger was going to be the answer to that prayer going to be the answer to that heart cry you and I celebrate it now every year celebrate it for really what it's worth the incarnation of God shows his love shows his glory solves our problems and can show you and I how steady this life can be why because a God that would not a God that would not go without knowing the life you and I lived he came he saw and he conquered and he looks at you and I and says come 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 next week as they play this morning if you need something